had this moment where I just thought, oh my gosh, what if my problem with yoga this whole time hasn't been my body, which is what I assumed. So teachers would say things like, you know, put your belly on your thighs. And I was like, I don't even really need to move to do that. <laughs> like, what are these instructions that don't make any sense for my body? So I just figured once I lose X amount of pounds or, you know, whatever my goal was of the day on that particular day, that's when I'll really get it. So I had this moment where I thought, what if my problem this whole time wasn't my body, but just that my teachers don't know how to teach my body? That was Anna Guest Jelly, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 85. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing and one thing only, telling the truth about our lives. No one's trying to sell you anything. I promise that no one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life by offering a 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. I'm so over that, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between that makes up life. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that you can often expect to hear adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you also won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. The show is 100% listener funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you, thank you so much. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you are saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a big thank you, you'll get access to over 30 hours of bonus content with new fun stuff added every month, as well as our community discussion page, our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I talk about my real life in real time and more. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Anna Guest Jelly. 
Anna is the founder of Curvy Yoga, an online yoga studio and teacher training center that helps people of all sizes find true acceptance and freedom both on and off the mat. Anna is the author of Curvy Yoga, Love Yourself and Your Body a Little More Each Day, as well as the co-editor of Yoga and Body Image, 25 Personal Stories About Beauty, Bravery, and Loving Your Body. Anna and Curvy Yoga have been featured online and in print in the New York Times, the Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, Yoga International, Yoga Journal, and many more. In this episode, Anna talks about body acceptance, what it is, what her journey has been like, and how to actually move toward a more accepting place within your own skin. She shares her history with dieting and the 65 different diets she tried before finally choosing a different path. And we talk about shame, stigma, how your body image can impact your marriage and relationships, and the fact that change is hard and messy in real life. We also talk about business, and Anna shares about the time she had to close her yoga studio after only a year because it wasn't profitable enough, among other honest stories that I feel like aren't talked about enough by business owners. This entire conversation is a deep well of truth, and I so appreciate Anna's openness. I hope you love our chat as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited too. I feel like you are one of those folks who I have known about kind of like in the periphery for a while. Like I know who you are. I know what you do like sort of through, I know we were just talking off air through our friend Alex Franzen and, you know, so it's nice to actually now be like, Ooh, okay. Now I get to learn everything about you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Same. I'm a listener and fan of the podcast. So it's excited, exciting to get to talk to you. Yay. Well, good. Let's dig in. Tell me what are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh my gosh. So for my birthday, which was just um, in April, my mom got me this lip gloss that I am like, I put it on like, I would say 17 times a day. It is from Sugar and it has like a little scrubber on the end. So when you put it on, it's kind of like you're exfoliating your lip and putting on a gloss at the same time. It's amazing. Yeah, that sounds super fun. That just, I just like flashed a really random memory into my head. When I was in college, I used to use this stuff called Lip Venom. Do you know what that is? Uh-uh. Oh my God. I mean, it's probably terrible for you. It's like one of those things that's marketed as like, it makes your lips like look more plump, whatever, which like to be honest, oh, I think yeah. is BS, but it has something in it that's like, it's like a stinging sensation. Like you put mm-hmm. it on and for the first like three to four minutes, it's like sort of uncomfortable, but it's the kind of thing that like, I don't know, I like started to like it. Uh-huh. And yeah, I would put it on like all day long, like, ooh, look, ooh, my lips. Ooh. And uh, I don't know, I don't do that anymore, but maybe I should revisit the lip venom. That was always fun. <laughs> I am upset. Like I'm so addicted to all lip gloss so that this one includes a little bit of exfoliation at the same time. I just love it. Yeah, it's been a really long time since I used lip gloss. See, this is like sending me down a whole like memory track of, <laughs> hey, maybe my self-care should include like lip gloss that stings and yet I like it. Maybe. <laughs> um, all right. So here is my question for you that has sort of been my uh, like question of choice as of late in like all conversations, basically. What's something that you wish that people were more open and honest about? Oh. Gosh, there's so many things. You know, one thing that I 
wish we could be more open about is, well, right now healthcare is on my mind. <laughs> so our know, experiences right? with healthcare. Um, I personally have migraines. I definitely have so many um, various pre-existing conditions that affect me. And my dad um, died from cancer uh, about six years ago. And my family would have been bankrupted with a lifetime limit if he had had that on his insurance. So that's something I wish we could be more honest about is just our experiences in our own lives and in a, with our families about health and health insurance. You know, I think it's something we keep so private. And the more that we can talk about it and say like, yeah, this literally saved my family member's life um, can make a really big difference. Yeah. I mean, that's so obviously by the time this comes out, but like this is on the day of this recording, right? Like literally the day this is all going down about the mm-hmm. healthcare act being passed in the house, right? I had to have, it's funny, I'm recording back-to-back episodes today and I had, you know, a little break in between and I had to take myself on a walk and be like, don't look at Twitter. Don't do it. Don't pull up the news. <laughs> like you have other conversations to have that aren't yeah. just like flipping tables and raging against the machine here. Um, no, but I mean, th- this is interesting. I want to dig into this a little bit because I think it brings up something that I've been thinking about a lot lately and that my best friend Jamie and I have been talking about is this kind of like strange tendency to attach morality to good health. Oh God. Yeah. You know that it's like, well, if you're a good person and you had it, so it's then like bad, only bad people get sick or these like preexisting, there's like something in there that I'm finding like particularly difficult right now. And I'm curious, given what you shared, if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, I have so much experience with that because, like I mentioned, I had three separate years in my life, one in high school, one in college, one in graduate school, where I had a migraine every single day. They oh, my just gosh. Wouldn't, yeah, they just wouldn't break. So doctors get really frustrated in that situation because nothing is helping. And then they just start to blame you. Like, clearly something is wrong with you if you're not getting better. I think that's one side of it. And then the other side that I've experienced personally and also see all the time through my work, and we see these messages everywhere, really, in the media, is how often people equate fat bodies with a lack of morality. Mm -hmm. Like, if you would just get your shit together, essentially, then you wouldn't be like this. But of course, when we look at the research and just, I honestly feel like this is common sense in some ways. Like, of course, all bodies are going to be different in different shapes and sizes. Like, it doesn't make sense (laughs) that we would all be exactly the same. Yeah, I think, you know, back to what you said about um, kind of the need to be more open and honest about health stuff. I feel like that's the only way that not only that stigma gets broken, but I just think that there is sort of this, I don't know, it's really easy to see any sort of, whether it's a migraine or, you know, something else as like to tell yourself a story of weakness and then to not Mm. want that to be part of like anything that's public facing. I mean, that's happened. That happened to me for sure with depression and with mental illness, you know, I mean, less so now, because I don't know how to just not be honest about everything at this point, (laughs) hence this podcast. But there were definitely times where I was like, well, this isn't something I can share because this is, this is a weakness, right? Or like I used to view it really differently and it's only through having conversations of, oh no, like I'm not special at like so many people have, you know, like any problem that I have or any issue or any fear, like everyone has also the same things, you know? So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes such a difference when you don't feel alone in what you're going through. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in the intersection of 
health and money too. For me, money is the thing that I wish that people were more open and honest about. Oh yeah. Nobody talks about that. Right. I'm obsessed with it. I feel like the people that are my good friends at this point, like they had to have passed the litmus test of like, can we talk about money all the time? Can we just like talk about where does money come from and how much do you earn? And like, are you in credit card debt? And like, what is this? And how much do you pay for? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Something that I have been more open about talking about with people in my life for a while. And I think it is kind of similarly to the health conversation, something where you feel so alienated. Um, So I had a yoga studio here in Nashville um, that I opened in 2014. And I unfortunately had to close a year later because the rent was just killing me. And I had about $50,000 in credit card debt because of that, because I didn't have an investor or any kind of like um, trust fund or whatever, just my own uh, income. And so I had to make that decision. And it's interesting because I think in the past, actually, I know in the past, I would have just kind of buried my head in the sand and said, like, I'm sure it'll work out. Like, I'll just say some affirmations and everything will be fine. Well, guess what? Sometimes you have to look at your money a little bit more honestly. (laughs) So when I looked at it, I was just like, I can't continue. I don't see a time when this is really going to turn around and I can start to pay off this debt unless I close the studio. And, you know, we were just talking earlier about the kind of shame that can come around those things. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, I'm closing and it's only been a year. This is so humiliating. But I think because I had done some good work up until that point in my life around shame and vulnerability and all of that, I just felt like I just, I can't continue to make this decision. I have to change it. Oh, I, I mean, thank you for sharing that. I feel like that's, it's so easy for us to kind of pigeonhole stories into like one thing or the other thing, success or failure, right? Like this worked or it didn't work or right. And then to feel anything that like we think is some kind of a failure or that in some ways is a lot of things, you know, don't work out. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. then by that nature, it was not successful, but that doesn't, it doesn't have to mean anything negative, like about us as people. And yet, right. Like I think that, you know, to your point of, Ooh, I feel humiliated or this, you know, it's only been a year there's, and that's honestly, I feel like that's the reason that we're so scared to try stuff. Right. Yeah. And to be able to hear you say like, I did this thing and it didn't work out and it was, you know, obviously I'm sure really hard, but also life goes on. Yeah. And the other interesting part of it for me is because Curvy Yoga also has an online side to the business. I was able to kind of say this part didn't work out. But it's not like the whole thing didn't work out. And of course, that's not always true with every part of life. Sometimes the whole thing doesn't work out. Um, But in that case, it was nice to be able to say in the times that I felt like a total total failure, well, that's not entirely true. That's not all of the evidence that's available here. Yeah, to be able to be like even a little bit more objective is such a freeing thing. Right, exactly. So I'm curious, do you remember kind of the either like the day or like the final conversation that you had with someone where you're like, okay, no, I'm going to close this studio. Oh, yes. Because I had this wonderful woman, Liz, who still works with me in a, in different ways now, who was the manager of the studio. And so she and I had been talking, I was trying to be open with her about the process, but not um, terrify her. <laughs> um, and I, ha- you know, we just went to lunch and I said, I have to 
close the studio and she totally understood and she knew about the finances and I kept her on even after we closed to give her a lot of time to find a new job. Um, but that was really painful, especially since there was another person mm. involved. Yeah. What do you feel like you took away from that experience? You know, a couple different things. I mean, one is what you said earlier that I'm glad that I took the risk. We did have a really wonderful year together. The problem was just the money, but the students and the community that was created, some of those people are still friends. I'm still connected with them. So I keep that kind of beautiful part of it um, in my pocket, I guess. And then, you know, I had some like niggling gut instincts that the money might not work out. And I was just kind of like, oh, well, I'll figure it out. Um, And so I think since then, like even more now, I really trust my gut on those things or dig in deeper to Mm -hmm. just kind of see what is going on here. And that, I mean, is a continual life lesson for me, (laughs) continuing to listen to those gut instincts. Because every time, I feel like mine is pretty strong. And every time I ignore it, I regret it. Isn't it funny how often we have to keep relearning the same lesson? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel like every, I've said this on other episodes too, that like, I feel like everyone has, I mean, of course we all have, you know, like 11 million issues, but there tends to be like a core issue or a core lesson, I think that comes up for each of us like over and over. Right. So yeah. maybe that's yours. That's definitely one of mine. <laughs> yeah. Mine's definitely around like control and surrender. And like, it's so mm. cute that I think I can control all the things, but like, that's never, <laughs> ever gonna, it's not, it's not like <laughs> just, you can't yeah. do it. Oh man. So, so, okay. So that's, that is a super, see, this is why I love, this is my, this podcast is like my favorite thing. I mean, obviously it's my, it's why I do it, but like just that I had no idea you were going to share that story, right. And all of the kind of research that I did and prepping for this, like that's something about you that I didn't know. So I'm grateful that you, that you shared that. Yeah. Well, thanks for creating the space. So, you know, pivoting, uh, obviously, like going back in the timeline a little bit, I know we just touched on your business and a couple of different things, but I remember I read something um, or I heard you say something, um, um, I, I think on your site or in a video or something, that you've been on 65 different diets in your life, and I need you to tell me all about this. <laughs> yeah, talk about the um, not trusting your instincts and, <laughs> and yeah. also control and surrender. So. I started going on diets when I was, well, I would say officially probably around the age of 10, but before that, even sooner. So my mom is a really thin woman. She always has been. And I was on the, you know, at the pediatrician, when you're a kid, they have those charts, like where you rank height and weight wise. Yeah. And so I was always kind of on the high end weight wise. And so my pediatrician was also hounding my mom to get me to lose weight, though I was probably like seven. (laughs) So it was only later on in my 20s in therapy that one of my therapists was like, you know, you were just growing, right? And I was like, oh my God, no. But of course it made so much sense in retrospect, like kids grow, (laughs) kids gain weight. That's how it goes. So I think that combination of my mom's own kind of obsession really with her weight and this pressure from the pediatrician, and it was never entirely clear to me how my dad weighed in on those situations. Like he would talk to me about my weight occasionally, but not very often. Um, So all of those things I think kind of factored together to just create this environment where I had put 
and the environment had sort of pushed me into this, all of my worth into what I weighed and it was never low enough. So that started this series of various diets that I was on from uh, like around 10 to probably, I don't know, late 20s. Mm. And (laughs) at that point in my late 20s, I was just getting so frustrated because I had two master's degrees. I was married. I felt like all these things in my life have lined up. They're all so good, but I can't let myself enjoy or like take credit for any of it because I just feel like a total failure because of my weight. And I just felt like I cannot go on one more diet. Like this is not working. I have 20 plus years worth of trying this. It's not working. And so that's when I started to learn about body acceptance and what that looked like. And just kind of on a lark, honestly, I thought I'm just going to total up the number of diets I have been on. And I thought I would come up with like 10, 20, maybe 30. And I came up with 65. That, like I, mean, you said. I know when I heard you say that, I was like, whoa, oh my God, we got to talk about that. Like, I know. But I honestly, again, I think if more people were open and honest, I don't think that that would sound as surprising. I know. I've talked to so many people who are like, oh, I've been on at least 65 diets. And I'm like, I, I believe it. Because some of those I went on multiple times um, and, you know, tried and failed and tried and failed. And that's how dieting usually works. You know, you try it for a little while. I was usually like a couple weeks, maybe a couple months at the outset, and then it fails because that's really how they're structured. Because diets <laughs> and then, don't work. <laughs> right, exactly. And then the way the system is set up, the individual is blamed and the system is never even questioned, much less blamed. So if you fail a diet, the messaging that you get is something's wrong with you, you're a failure, you have to try again. And of course, the system benefits from that because that means you're going to pay for that next diet, whatever it is. Um, Rather than us saying like, hold on a second, why am I paying thousands of dollars to this over 20 years and nothing's ever happening or changing? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I mean, not just in the realm of you know, body acceptance, but this idea of kind of following the money of like, okay, hang on, pause, who benefits if I keep myself like stuck in this cycle, whatever the cycle is, right? Because if you trace it back, like there is someone, some industry, some situation, like there's, there's a reason that dieting is what a multi-billion dollar industry, right? Right. Like, And yet, I mean, it doesn't work. And it also makes that much money. That's why it makes that much money because it doesn't work, right? Like, right. I mean, the diet industry would have to shutter its doors if it worked, right? Like there would be no one left to pay for it. So do you remember like a specific turning point for you? Like did something happen where you were like, you know, I think I'm out. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah, there is this moment and a few different things converged when I was in my mid to late 20s. I got married when I was 24 and a couple or so years into the marriage, I just... I had gained some weight after we got married and I started to notice how resistant I was to my husband's affection. Like I, in the back of my mind, was always keeping myself away from him a little bit because I thought it was inevitable that he would leave me based on my weight. Like I was not entirely clear. I should back up and say that 
my husband's love has always been totally clear for me and not dependent on my size in any way. This is all my own baggage. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of felt like, oh, well, he's going to leave. So I'm just going to like not put my whole heart into this 100%, maybe 90%, because um, I, I know this day is going to come. And I think I just started to see that thought more and more. And it made me so upset because I knew that it wasn't coming from him, that it was all from me. And that's when I just was like, oh my gosh, like, why can I not lose weight? And started to look at this whole past history of how many diets I had been on and just how much of my time and money and energy and frustration went into it. And I just didn't want to live that way anymore. I really couldn't live that way anymore. And that was that turning point where I just thought, I just have to find another way. Like this whole, it's not the 66 diet. And really tallying those numbers was a huge turning point because when I saw 65 diets, I just was like, oh, it was one of those moments. You know how you have those moments in life where they're not very often, but where everything kind of changes. Yeah. And that was that moment where I was like, I don't need a 66 diet. Like I have more than enough information. I'm basically a lay dietitian. Like I'm good. <laughs> I don't need right. to know anything else about this. What I need is a totally different paradigm. Yeah, it's those like interesting moments where you once you kind of know something, you can't unknow it, right? Like once you know that yeah. number, 65, and you it, it almost forces you Okay, so sidebar, something else I'm really interested in is like the stories that we tell about ourselves to ourselves, right? Like you mm. just mentioned this story that you were telling about my husband's going to leave me because, you know, because of my weight or whatever that like that's a, entirely a self-created, right? I mean, well, right. culture created maybe. I wouldn't say totally self-created, but yeah, that, right. something that's not coming from our immediate reality and yet it's almost like an interesting place where we reach the personal growth point of I see that this is a false story and it's a story that I'm just telling myself and yet I still can't be free of this story. Like that's a really interesting sticky place because I feel like a lot of shame can come from what do I want to say? There's, there's things I am now I'm blanking on a good example, but things that happened to me where like something makes me feel shitty. And mm-hmm. so I'm feeling badly, but then it's like, I, I know better. Like I know that I should be above that. Right. Like I know that I'm not supposed to be letting, you know, jealousy or this or whatever. So then I like feel twice as bad. Right. That it's like, right. I know this is a self-created story and yet, you know, so I find that interesting you know, that this point that you're describing of like, well, I see that I'm the one that's doing this to myself. And then, you know, realizing that's often really helpful. But even then, it's still like extra steps to be like to step out of like a paradigm that you've had for 10 years, 20 years, like your whole life. Right. Yeah, I think Buddhists call that the second arrow. Have you heard about that? No, but tell me I'm into it. So the first arrow is whatever the difficult situation is, whether that's something you're creating, a story you're creating, or something that happens in your life that's terrible. And the second arrow is how you obsess about it. Mm -hmm. That's I think about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's totally true, right? It's that, well, yeah, that's funny. I'm thinking about that book, Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier. I don't know if you read Mm. that, but it was, it's basically someone who was really skeptical about meditation, but kind of went down that path, right? And so it's like, mm-hmm. a, and there's something that he says in that, um, that I think about a lot, this idea that like, it's, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's that it's not, it's not the pain, like it's the fact that you're resisting the pain, right? That mm-hmm. it's like our reaction to the thing that's causing us the suffering. Yeah, right. Man. So during this period of time, when you were sort of realizing this, were you 
in conversation with your husband about this? Like, was he an active kind of part of you working through this? Oh my God, I wish, but no, because of the shame, I didn't feel like I could talk to him about that. We didn't talk about it until much later. Um, cause I just felt like I have to kind of hide this from him. I didn't want him to know that I felt like a failure on diets or that I was sick. I felt like if I told him, I thought he was going to leave me that that would somehow make it happen. Mm. <laughs> That's kind of some backward thinking, but, um, so it took, you know, several, well, I would say we did start talking about trying something different from dieting. He did know my history of dieting, um, and how, many different things I had done as a kid. So he was sort of aware of it from that side. Um, And so he knew I started seeing this um, kind of intuitive eating therapist type person. Um, So he knew I was doing that. So we were sort of talking about it on the periphery, but not going so much to the heart of it for a while because I just wasn't ready. And honestly, I didn't really have the skills to Mm -hmm. do it at the time. Yeah. So you know, from that point when you decided, okay, a 66th diet is clear, like clearly the system's broken, right? Like it's not, right. I've tried this, right? Like clearly I've tried this. What'd you do mm-hmm. next? Well, I, I think the next thing I did was go to the internet. So I started researching some different things, like what is out there. I found out about intuitive eating and found this, um, like I mentioned that therapist person who worked with it in my town, which was such a blessing, and started going to her and really had my eyes just kind of opened wide about dieting and how they failed. And, you know, some of the things that we talked about here, which I had thought was my personal failure, but turns out it wasn't. Um, so I was going to her for probably six months. And part of the process we were in is I wouldn't weigh myself. That was part of our, part of the healing process, um, stopping getting off the scale. And so I was like doing great with that. I felt really good in my body. And then one day just sort of like, oh, I think I'm good. Like, I'm just going to step on the scale and see what happens. And I had gained 10 pounds and I just like wanted to die. And I was like, clearly this is not working. I stopped going. I, I went on another diet. I don't remember what it was, but I had to have this time like uh, resisting it or away from it, which was it was just really a second arrow situation because I knew that it wasn't right, but I just was so caught up in it. And later on, I have so much compassion for myself now in that moment because, like, of course I couldn't just do it, you know, out of the mm-hmm. gate like that. I had 20 plus years of experience doing the opposite. So <laughs> it makes a lot of sense that it didn't stick the first time. Um, so I had to have some of that back and forth for a while and get really frustrated and just be like, okay, I have to like take this on for real. Yeah, no, I mean, I really want to, I don't know what I want to say, like, thank you for your honesty. Cause I feel like there's so much, especially in any kind of story of change, right? Like someone who has successfully, whatever we call successfully made some kind of change, right? Like whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, like moving farther down the path of body acceptance or like quitting drinking or doing, you know, like whatever, any right. like, change that someone's made, it's really I mean, the quitting drinking example, like that's a personal example. So that's why that came to my Mm -hmm. head. It's easy when you're far enough removed from like the initial process of making the change to sort of like either rewrite the story about it or to like only talk about it when you have a lot of distance from it and forget that like 
the narrative, I mean, maybe some people are really lucky and it is just this, I just decided and then everything was different and awesome, mm-hmm. great for those people. But I think like 99 point, you know, whatever percent of people, that's not how change happens. And yeah. so I think we do ourselves and each other a disservice from telling these stories of like, and then I just decided to be different. Okay. <laughs> like, congrats, bro. Like, I don't you know what right. I mean. Like that, I'm not and buying it. So, and, and even if it is true, okay, that doesn't help me. Right. So it's, and I think it's more often not true. And, but yet those are so, there's so much of that story and that narrative out there that I think I have found it's been really easy when I'm struggling with a certain change. And for each person, like some changes are harder than others, you know, like maybe it would be right. easy for me to just stop doing, you know, X thing, but then, you know, Z thing is like impossible, right? Like everyone's different, but mm-hmm. that second arrow in that situation is always, this is so easy for everyone else. What's wrong with me? And yet it's not because, you know, like you, you made this decision and saw this intuitive eating person and like that time went by and then, okay, I'm going to try another diet. Like that's real life. And I think, I don't know if it's a real gift that we can, I think, give each other to be like, nope, took a lot of tries, still isn't easy. Doesn't mean that it's not worth it, you know? Yeah, this is like my real answer to your first question about what do you wish people were more honest about, though that was also something I believe in. But I think the process of change is something that's so important to be honest about because I have this conversation about body acceptance. I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say every single day. Mm-hmm. I think I have this conversation constantly where people say, you know, I'm interested in body acceptance or I gave it a try or, you know, whatever. And it didn't work. I couldn't do it. Therefore, it's not for me. And I just am trying to like shout from the rooftops. That's not a sign that you're a failure. (laughs) Like that's just how it goes. That's just an ebb and a flow. One of the things I've been on a kick talking about lately is really like the seasonality of life and not just, you know, I think when we think about the seasons of life, we think like our young adulthood and our adulthood. But I mean, like, from day to day, from week to week, month to month, et cetera, we are just always changing. And there's a narrative that we should only be moving forward in this linear way. That's not how life works, but we all think it should be. So we don't talk about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm obsessed with everything that you just said. I am also super into the, like the real talk about the process of change. And yeah, this, this idea of like seasons or cycles, or I think about it a lot in terms of kind of our cultural obsession with productivity, right? That Mm. it's like sometimes I'm a lot more creative than other times. Like sometimes it's just not happening or like, no, I'm just going to lay on the couch all day or do like that. This always have to be doing this thing. Yeah, you're right. That this kind of like the only correct story is like the constant forward progress in however that's defined in any arena of your life. And like, that's not like some periods of time, like you're depressed or this is happening or this other thing, or like, it's just, I don't know. I think that, and yet we give ourselves a really hard time for that. Right. Yeah. I actually have some example of that that's going on for me right now. So With Curvy Yoga, it started in 2010. I used to blog twice a week. I did that for five years. And then I just kind of hit a wall and was like, I can't blog this much anymore. I was also writing a weekly email. It was just a lot to be creating. And so over the past couple years, I have like super slowed down and tried to change things. And so this year I baked into what I'm offering through Curvy Yoga Um, I baked seasonality into it. So I'm doing this thing called the stretch where we have three months together of 
emails, resources, support, et cetera. And then there's a one month break. So there's one month where no one hears from me. And at the beginning of the month, this I'm kind of at the end of that month, the first time right now as we're recording. And at the beginning of the month, I was like, do 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 I'm just going to go along and do all this stuff and keep going. And then I was like, wait a minute, I also have to take the break. <laughs> so I was thinking about, you know, what am I going to do for the next round? What am I going to offer? And I had no ideas whatsoever. And I was in this place of, I've said everything there is to say about this. No one cares. This is all terrible. Why am I still doing this? And because I've had a taste of that in my work before, I just thought I just have to let go. I have to let it ride and see what happens. So I had two weeks where I basically did nothing. I just kind of let things percolate in the background. And then slowly the idea started to come back. And now I'm excited to do the next round. And I built that break in for me and also for all of the members of the Curvy Yoga community. Because I think when we have things that we value and want to talk about and share with people, it's important to also model them. So that's kind of my effort at that right now. I love that. I mean, I think, first of all, another lesson I always have to relearn is that, hey, taking a break works, like rest works, right? right? Like, okay, (laughs) so that's true for everyone. Um, And yet I'm very resistant to that. But I've been thinking a lot lately about, um, you know, people talk a lot about like identifying your values and your core values and all that kind of stuff, which is great, right? And a helpful exercise, but like the practice of actually living your values, like the example that you just gave, I feel like is such a good one of, okay, well, I say that seasonality is important to me, right? And like rest and like different periods of time for different things. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if your business is go, go, go all the time and you're blogging twice a week and doing all these things, okay, well, that's out of alignment, right? So being able to, right. like, it's one thing to say, like, it's cute for me when I'm like, oh, I really believe this thing. But then my life is the opposite of that thing. I'm like, well, do you believe it? Or does it just like feel good to you to say that you believe it? You know, right. <laughs> because <laughs> being able to be like, no, I believe in this to the point that I'm in a structure. It's funny for me with this podcast. And I, I've talked about this before too. Like my workflow preference is do a ton of things over a short period of time and then do no things as opposed to like, I'm not good at the, 30 minutes a day, hour a day. I mean, for kind of creation style things, I would rather, you know, and so that's, that's literally why it's a seasonal, like why it's every other month, a whole season, as opposed to every week. Like, that's it. Just like, I can't work that way. I don't enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah. Our, uh, I think mutual, uh, crush, maybe Sarah Von Bargen, who I know you had on the podcast. Um, she inspired me recently, actually this week, I have heard her say on her blog that she takes, I don't know, a night or two every quarter. I don't know how often she does it and goes away to a hotel and just writes and gets a bunch of stuff done. And so on Monday and Tuesday, I just went to a coffee shop. I didn't go to a hotel, but I got a ton of stuff written for the next round of the stretch because I was feeling inspired from that rest and ready to like crank it out. Oh yeah. My sweet friend, Melissa Casera, she's also been on the show. She's like a big advocate for, she calls it batch working. I think she has a program mm, around it too. Yeah. She does. I'll link to it. But yeah, same thing. This idea of like go, you know, for two days or whatever that looks like, even at your house or whatever, just this idea that once you get into the flow of something, like I notice that it takes me so long. I'm working on a writing project right now that takes me and I am going against and see maybe, okay, I just had a little self epiphany right here. I have been doing <laughs> the like do it an hour a day type of situation, which like uh-huh. obviously isn't working because Nicole know yourself better so okay so I'm not going to do that thank you for the therapy um that once I'm in the flow of it it's much easier to keep doing it 
than it is to have right. to go through like the energy to restart every day. So yeah, if you yeah, have the ability. Yeah, that's what I experienced for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally, totally. Okay, so circling back, um, if you're talking about body acceptance every day, which I totally believe with the work that you do, I'd love to put, I don't know if definition is right, but to put some kind of a defini- definition around it, you know, when you talk about body acceptance, like what is that? What do you mean? So... The way that I'm talking about it right now that feels most true to my own experience and what I hear from students is that it's really about an ongoing and evolving conversation with your body. And the reason I'm really foregrounding that conversation part right now is because of what you and I were just talking about, where people can feel, I mean, this happens so much with body acceptance, and it makes sense, that you're going to get to this place with your body where you'll be like, we're great. And then you can just kind of dust off your hands and be done with it. I thought that was going to happen. It hasn't. And I don't think that it will. Um, And I think, you know, so many people who come to body acceptance come through something like dieting or just any way that they are um, not happy with their body. And that is often a very black and white situation. So with dieting in particular, you know, you're either doing it right or you're doing it wrong. You're on a diet, you're off a diet. It's just such a black and white kind of scenario or paradigm that it's not surprising that people then bring that paradigm to body acceptance. So it's so important for me to talk about process and practice and conversation. And that's really why I love yoga as a tool for body acceptance, because yoga already has practice as a huge part of it. That's what we call it. And people can really learn about practice through yoga. And I think we have to have a practice framework when we think about body acceptance. So I'd love to hear what you think are some of the misconceptions about body acceptance. You mentioned that it's like a point that you arrive at, right? Which I think a lot of people feel like, okay, and then I just get here and I'm done and everything's good, right? Like, because also that's a little bit of a fantasy. Like we don't want to have to do this every day, you know? know? So I'm interested (laughs) if there have been other kind of misconceptions or like things that you think that in general we get wrong when we talk about body acceptance? I think there's an idea that body acceptance means giving up on your body. I really want to like bust that myth (laughs) everywhere Um, because this is back into that kind of black and white framework where people think, well, I'm just going to accept my body and that means I will never like care for it or about it or do anything for it again. And In my experience, nothing could be further from the truth because when I was on all of those diets, I basically outsourced what was happening with my body to that diet. So the diet, I would like look at the paper, the book, the whatever, and it would say, oh, breakfast, you are going to eat half of a grapefruit. And I would just eat that half of a grapefruit. It didn't matter. I couldn't even feel anymore. When I was hungry, when I wasn't hungry, I just looked at this paper. I did it. Same thing for exercise. Oh, you should do this. That's what I did. So I didn't have any say or conversation with my body, even though almost all of my waking thoughts and probably my sleeping thoughts were about my body (laughs) because of that diet. And what I have found now in body acceptance is that I have to be in that conversation every day. Like, when am I hungry? When am I not? What am I hungry for? What would really feel good for me to be doing in terms of movement? I grew up like totally not a sporty kid. The only kind of exercise I ever did was like going to aerobics with my mom so that I would lose weight. And 
I, in the past few years, took up lap swimming and I love it. It is the best. It's like such a big, important part of my life, both for my mental health, anxiety, um, my body. I just feel so good being in the water. So I think body acceptance is really what helps you ratchet up your relationship with your body, if anything. Yeah, I like this idea of kind of being in constant dialogue with yourself or like regular dialogue with yourself. It's Mm -hmm. since I've started to, I mean, just through smart folks that I've had on the podcast and, you know, like other research and reading, like thinking about this more like body acceptance and diet culture and just like starting to look at ways that it pops up almost like subtly or subconsciously or like subversively in life. What is something that I realized a couple months ago, there was one day where through no external justification, I was a lot hungrier, right? Like no mm. reason. And I was upset with myself. Like, well, what's, why, why? It's like when we're so Oh my God, t- like, I've been there. Right. Or like it yeah. happens to me with being tired too, or being low energy back to the like obsession yeah. with productivity and busyness. Like what's wrong with you? Like you slept fine. Like why are you tired? Like not allowing, like you said, like the, like the daily cycles or like the dips and the ebbs and flows and like having to stop and be like, well, I'm hungrier because I'm not a robot. Like I'm an animal. Some days you're hungrier than other days. Like we don't, right. it's, like, it's a complicated <laughs> system to like live in a human body. I don't know. Like, how is my heart beating? How does anything work? I don't know. You know, <laughs> right. and to be like, oh man, like diet culture is far reaching that I'm upset with myself that I'm hungrier and there's seemingly no justification for it as opposed to just being like, okay, so eat more. I don't know. Maybe this sounds silly, but. No, I mean, I think that's so important to call out because I think many of us, I know I have definitely had that experience where you are kind of expecting your body to work in this set predictable way every single day, day to day. And when that changes, you're like, wait, what's wrong? When like you're saying nothing's wrong. That's what it means to be a human. (laughs) But we don't let ourselves do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that speaks uh, w- what you were saying about um, the like being in kind of constant conversation with yourself. That's the only way that you recognize like what your changing needs are. Right. Yeah, exactly. When I was so like in preparation for this conversation, just kind of like thinking about that phrase, like body acceptance or thinking about it, something that came up for me was like in thinking about this, I think about like body acceptance as like loving myself, not in spite of my body, but within my body. And I'd be Mm. interested to hear, this might be a strange question, but if you can share some of the particular joys in your life that you attribute to your specific body. Oh yeah. That's a great question. You know, this might sound weird, but through my dieting history, I just became completely disconnected from my body. I had no clue. When I started going to that therapist that with intuitive eating, one of the exercises we had to do was um, gauge our hunger before and after each meal on a scale from one to 10. And it was supposed to help you kind of hone that skill. But I had no idea. And I literally lied every time. I would just be like, uh, three before the meal, I was almost always a three before and a seven after. And sometimes I would change it a little bit so that hopefully my therapist wouldn't notice that I was lying because I just had no clue. And so these days, the fact that I can feel when I'm hungry, what's happening in my foot in a yoga pose, when I'm tired, even if I don't always listen and go, you know, lay down or whatever, because totally I don't, um, 
that just feels like such a blessing because it helps me be more present in my life and my relationships and to remember my life because when I was so disconnected, disassociated really from my body, I have such few memories of my childhood. Mm. And so now I'm really conscious of trying to be present so that I can remember all the good things that happen in my life because so many good things do. Yeah, that idea of, you know, when you're so separate from your body, even if you're thinking about it all the time, that like disconnect plays out in so many ways. You know, I think that the lack of memory is an interesting perspective that I maybe wouldn't have thought of, but makes sense, right? Like if you're disconnected from yourself, then you're dis- then you're not being present. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just like a different experience. Yeah, it's kind of, I don't remember the language you used a second ago, but the way I think about that now is I was constantly thinking about my body but I was almost never thinking with my body. I think you said within or inside or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So throughout this process, you mentioned, you know, that it wasn't something that you and your husband really talked about until later. Do you remember, you know, the first, I guess, really honest conversation that you guys had about this? You know, Kirby yoga actually started to bring it up because I was being honest about my experience and Nick was reading my blog. (laughs) So it wasn't um, through my courageous bringing up a conversation with him, though, you know, that would be a nice story. (laughs) Um, And so we started to talk about, he would kind of say like, oh, I didn't know this. I read this in your blog. And I would feel sort of sheepish, like, oh, gosh, I didn't, wasn't totally aware that he didn't know this. You know, some things I felt like, oh, he's read my mind and he knows exactly how I feel about my entire history. Well, of course, that's not true. (laughs) So sometimes I would be surprised, like, how did you not know this already? Um, So it really has been like this ongoing kind of conversation and deepening in our relationship. And it also has to do with honesty and just being willing to be more open and vulnerable with him. I think through that dieting history, it made me really closed because I felt so ashamed of my inability to quote unquote succeed there Mm -hmm. that it was so hard for me to be open with anybody like it takes me well I would say I'm better at it now but used to take me so long for people to really get to know me and people would always say you're such a good listener and I would think well that's true but that's also because I just don't I'm not I'm not sharing anything like I'm good at asking you a lot of questions and it feels like I'm engaged in the conversation and I was you know for, in terms of listening but that's something I've had to learn too not only in my relationship with Nick but with friendships because especially when I was in high school and college I had a few friendships that in retrospect I was like this was a totally one-sided friendship like it was all about the other person. It was never about me at all. Um, and I, I was like, absolutely um, enabling that situation. Yeah, right. That it's uh, up to us to sort of take the steps to be willing to be more open or be more vulnerable. Right, exactly. It's, it's funny. I feel like vulnerability in the last like, couple of years has become like such a buzzword, right? Which right. Like, is good or whatever. But I always find it so uh, particularly interesting what you said about, you know, you were sharing these personal things on your blog and then that was leading to, you know, a conversation with your partner that I, I was kind of laughing in my head because I sometimes find it easier 
to share in a really public platform. It's funny because it seems like it would be scarier, like, oh my God, you don't know who's reading this or so many people reading this, but it's almost like controlled intimacy where yeah. like you craft the story, right? And even if it's totally honest, that like then you share it and can kind of like step away from it as opposed to, and sure, it feels not great if people judge you or say mean things, but it's really scary when it's like your closest people, which sometimes I feel like it should be the opposite. It should be so much easier to open up to those closer to you. But I have found that that's often not the case. Yeah. Oh, I'm a hundred percent the same. I'll like put it in a blog post and email, whatever, before I'll tell it to my husband, my best friend, you know, whoever. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I guess that's those of us that are like that get drawn to this type of work, right? So I guess mm-hmm. that's not surprising. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So something else that I heard you say that um, I thought was really interesting was something about that you're obsessed with the how of things, like in this oh, idea yeah. of, okay, how am I actually going to accept my body? Because this is honestly where I, like with body acceptance, where I think a lot of people that feel frustrated of like, okay, well, that sounds great, right? Like that sounds really yes. lovely. It sounds like a good idea. Like I, yes, I would like to purchase that for nine ninety nine, which obviously is not what you can right. do. But so I'm curious on like the, like giving us a look at sort of the how behind body acceptance, like maybe practical tools that have truly worked for you or like, how do we move from that sounds good to actually doing that as, as you said, as a practice? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because it drives me crazy. You know, I think a lot of times people come to body acceptance through things like empowering images or, um, social media graphics or whatever. And I think that's so important. Like we need a foothold to get in and whatever yours is, is great. But what can happen is then people get stuck. Like, okay, like you said, this seems like a good idea, but now what do I actually do? (laughs) So, you know, of course, this probably isn't surprising. One of the things that I think is great is yoga. And that is because it's not even about what your body experiences, though, of course, that's great. But it's really about how... In most yoga classes, the teacher is asking you to notice what is happening with your breath right now. Where is your knee in this pose? Is this the right place for it? Do you need a block here? And that is starting to foster your ability to notice those things, notice what's going on with your body. And I am one of those people who went to yoga and heard a teacher say, you know, feel what's happening in your pinky toe. And I thought that was a metaphor. Like, I did not think that was a real thing because yoga teachers say many things that are metaphors that I was just kind of like, that's cute. This yoga teacher, she doesn't, you know, she's just saying these crazy things. Who knows? And so over time, I was able to start to feel those things through that process of inquiry. So I think having questions that you ask yourself, um, whether that's on the yoga mat or off, um, one of my favorites is what do I or what does my body need in this moment? And how can I meet that need with the resources I have on hand? And what I love about that question is it's asking you to notice what do you need? And for anybody listening, like you might ask yourself that for days, weeks, months, years, if you're me, and not have an answer or not be sure or feel like you're guessing. And that's just part of the process. So I don't want you to feel like if you ask and you don't have an answer, or you're not sure that that's a bad sign. That's just part of it. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of it is with the resources I have on hand. Because I think sometimes we feel like, oh my God, what I really need is a three-month vacation, but I'm not going to get that. So just 
throw this whole thing in the garbage. But with the resources I have on hand, you know, if you're tired and that's where that vacation thing is coming from, maybe you're able to go to bed five minutes earlier or do some deep, take a deep breath. I, to this day, continue to somehow, I don't know how, be surprised by the fact that taking a deep breath can really make a big difference. So this process of inquiry is something I think can really help to build that how in. Because the thing is, I like to think about body acceptance like any relationship where it's hard to be accepting of someone when you do not know a thing about them. And the same thing is true with your own body. Yeah, I I love that way of looking at it. I I think that so much of what you just said is, you know, I know we were talking about sort of like the greater change process and how like challenging it is to make change. I think that one of the biggest obstacles that I have found around making changes is like sort of what I was saying before about like this, the fantasy that we have of the change as like a single occurrence event, right? Mm-hmm. That like, now I accept my body, like now I this or whatever. It's right. like, we, we sort of, I think it's it's curious how we, or I mean we, okay, how I, <laughs> how mm-hmm. I like arbitrarily divide things in my life into things that I fully accept are, are daily or reoccurring things. Like I accept that I have to continue to make myself food each day. Right. That like, right. it's not like I eat dinner once and I never have to eat dinner again. Right. Right. And like, I have to shower, right? Like I have to keep showering, uh-huh. showering. is And like there's, and that's totally fine. Like I accept that. I don't resist that that's true. I mean, sometimes I don't shower as much as I should, but whatever. <laughs> and yet there's these other things, right? Like maybe it's body acceptance, maybe whatever that like I feel I judge as like should be like one time big events, right? Like. Or like, and then I just turn the corner and this is like, and then I'm different or like any of these and I, body acceptance is just one thing, but yeah, I, that this idea like that you said before about thinking of it as a practice, like the same way like yoga is a practice, this idea that like how much better could our lives be or how much more free could we be if we allowed this thing that we're having a hard time with to be something that's like less sexy and has to happen every day. Right. That like we want right. it to be you know, we go to Bali for three months, like the taking like a good deep breath that sounds like roll my eyes, right? Like we want it to be all or nothing, but it works, right? Like if we can let go of this like need for things to be all or nothing or for it to be this like really big, sexy, then I had this awakening moment and like I loved every inch of my body forever. Like what if that Mm -hmm. doesn't happen? Okay, but like could this other version of it that's like less sexy and way more practical? Like what if that is the thing. I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah. Well, and that reminds me of something we were talking about earlier with the ebb and flow of life, because I, I have a yoga teacher who did, who led my 200 hour training and he had a yoga teacher who had cancer and in the process of her dying, invited her students to her bedside and was talking with them about life and yoga and, you know, kind of what she wanted them to take away from their time together in that teacher-student relationship. And she said, you know, I'm here in this bed. I can't do anything, but I can take this breath. And this is still my yoga. And it's about that awareness, that intentionality. And that honestly was something that I have never forgotten. I doubt that I ever will. Really was a transformative moment for me because I just thought, oh my gosh, if I want my yoga practice like this woman's, to last until the end of my life, that means like 
it is a fact. It will mean that there are times that it's more physical or less physical, that it's more energy or time or whatever, other times that it's less. And that has been, you mentioned freedom, like that has been so liberating for me to know that every day is not going to be the same with my yoga practice. It's going to ebb and it's going to flow. And that counterintuitively to me, at least for a long time, is what has actually helped me to create a regular yoga practice. Oh, yeah. You know, for yeah. so long, I tried to like strong arm it and I would have like a checklist where I would check off the days that I did it, you know, all that stuff that people do, put it on my calendar, whatever. And now that I just give myself the grace to be a human where things change from day to day and I just say, what can I do today? That's one of my big questions. Um, I think yoga so often gets into the realm of shoulds. And so I love to ask people to instead ask what their yoga practice could be that day and to give themselves the permission if the answer is five deep breaths before bed to let that be okay, that's still your practice. And I think this framework, like I'm talking about it in terms of yoga, but it applies to everything. It applies to body acceptance and any other parts of life where we feel like, why didn't I just already get this over with? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have a tendency to turn everything, even things that I really want to do into to-do list items. And then I feel like I'm like rushing <laughs> through my life, yeah, right? Try, right. Like, what am I trying to check everything off for? Like what, this is something that I actually want to do. And yet I've turned it into, I mean, again, I think that falls into the like need to be busy, need to be productive, like feel yeah. worthy. The more things I check off, you know, <laughs> totally. Yeah. So tell me about the day that you decided to start curvy yoga. <laughs> I'm laughing because it it wasn't exactly a day, but it was more of a kind of slow build. So I had been going to, well, there is kind of a day. So I had been going to this therapist that I mentioned and, you know, starting to get more into body acceptance, even though I was on and off again with it, I was still going to yoga this whole time. So I had this moment in a class where those two things just kind of converged in my mind, yoga and body acceptance, because I practiced yoga for almost 10 years before I started that body acceptance journey. So it wasn't just like, oh, this just came right along with me from day one. Uh, no. So I had this moment where I just thought, oh my gosh, what if my problem with yoga this whole time hasn't been my body, which is what I assumed. So teachers would say things like, you know, put your belly on your thighs. And I was like, I don't even really need to move to do that. <laughs> like, what are these instructions that don't make any sense for my body? So I just figured once I lose X amount of pounds or, you know, whatever my goal was at the day on that particular day, that's when I'll really get it. So I had this moment where I thought, what if my problem this whole time wasn't my body, but just that my teachers don't know how to teach my body. And so I started kind of poking around that and talking to some teachers. And I found out really quickly, like, oh, they're not learning this information. And that is when I thought, oh, maybe I'll become a yoga teacher. And I was teaching English at the time. So I knew that I loved teaching and I knew that I loved yoga. And so I thought, I'm just going to see about putting these things together. And at the time, there were way less yoga teacher trainings available. So it was at least a year, I think, until one came to my area. And <laughs> I was really excited. I got the information, but I was also so scared. I can't tell you how many times I almost backed out. So you had to fill out a written application and then go meet with the teacher or one of the teachers in person and just kind of talk about it. So 
when I was going to that interview, I almost didn't leave my house at all. I drove halfway across town. I almost turned back. I pulled into the driveway. I almost pulled out. And really, the only reason I didn't is because it was gravel, and it was just me and the teacher there, and I knew that she would have heard me pull in. <laughs> I didn't want to be Whatever it takes. she was like, yeah. oh, man. So I went to meet with her, and I fully expected her to say, you know, I'd love to have you, but you really have to lose weight. And I even gave her some kind of an out and said, you know, I'm not really sure if I need to lose weight. And she was just so welcoming, um, and that was kind of how it all grew, though I had no vision. I didn't have the name Curvy Yoga. I didn't have any big grand plan. You know, I think that's another one of the things that people can sometimes think is like they see something that they think is successful and they think like, oh, it just, it was such a great idea. It came out like this fully formed. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> yeah. It's just a series of like saying yes to things that you like, Hey, maybe this could work or I'm curious about this or yeah, I agree with you that that's a misconception that we think, Oh, she just like woke up one day and like had this whole business plan and like, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's really interesting that realization of, Oh, it's not my body. It's the, the teachers that I'm, you know, taking classes with don't know how to teach my body. And something that I know that you're wonderful at is creating like welcoming, inclusive class environments, right? For people of every shape and size. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, let's say maybe for any yoga teachers listening who want to create more inclusive spaces, do you have any specific tips or advice? Yeah. You know, I think there's so many different things that can be done. And it's all about welcoming in the whole body because, Oftentimes the instruction is really targeted to muscles and bones. And of course we still need that information, but bringing in, you know, oh, if your belly feels compressed in this forward bend, here's what you can do. is just so freeing and not only for curvy bodies. So I can't tell you how many times I've had students of all shapes and sizes, students who I wouldn't have visually identified as benefiting from these things try it and be like, oh my gosh, I made such a difference. I'm so much more comfortable. I came into the pose further. And I think we're so rarely in spaces where the whole body is just acknowledged. It's not criticized and it's not presented in some weird way. Um, I always encourage teachers to share that information in a neutral way, the same as they would talking about somebody's low back or whatever. Um, And presenting that in the context of if-then type of cues where you say, if this is happening, you know, like I just said, if your belly's feeling compressed, then try this. That way you're not saying, hey, person with the belly in the back row, give this a try. Mm -hmm. Um, That makes space for that person to feel more included and also makes space for everybody to try it because they might benefit. And the other thing that that does is just encourage that process of inquiry that we were talking about earlier. So that's just one example. Yeah, no, that's great. What would you say your superpower is? Like, what do you do really, really well that sets curvy yoga apart? I I think it's my honesty about my story and my honesty about the process. I never, ever want anyone to think that I have body acceptance or yoga all figured out. I really try to foreground, you know, we're all kind of in this together. This is a process and a practice and just try to bring that human side to it. Because I think how people started connecting was through my blog. And I was, you know, just talking about many of the things that we've been talking about here. 
And people were saying, me too, me too. You know, there's such power in that. And you do that here through the podcast too. Um, and I think that's really the the juice of curvy yoga. Yeah, no, I mean, I think so too. I, I, it's one of, I like asking people what they think they're good at, right? Or what their superpower is. Cause I feel like we don't, I don't know. We, especially like a women as women, right? Like, right. like no, I'm awesome at this. Listen, <laughs> I, yeah. there's something about that that I really like. Um, have you received any like pushback from the yoga community? Oh yeah. You know, one of the most common things I hear is we don't need something like curvy yoga because all classes should be accepting of all bodies. And I'm always like, listen, I totally agree with you, but the reality is not that. And so usually that can start to turn that conversation around a little bit because, I mean, if a day comes where all classes are totally accepting of all bodies and have the skills to teach those bodies, then like, I'll just hang up my, like close my door and be like, okay, bye guys. (laughs) Yeah. Right. My work here is done. Yeah. You know, like I'll just move along. Um, But I think part of that is people who feel like, well, I'm accepting of people like in my heart, which is, you know, good and important. (laughs) Um, But teaching a variety of different bodies when you didn't learn that in your training is not only a matter of thinking good thoughts. There also has to be skills to back that up. Yes. Uh, No. Okay. So this is speaking to something that I think is important. I mean, like even far outside of the idea of yoga, but that this, you know, even people that consider like, I consider myself a good person or right. Like I don't have hate in my heart or, you know, whatever version of that we want to say like that, that and being loving is wonderful. But this idea that inclusion often requires a skill set, right? Like if you're talking about a specific industry or specific situation, that if the default is not to learn those, to be taught those skills, right. That are more inclusive, then it's, you know, kind of like a blind spot into, well, I'm not meaning to leave anybody out or I'm not. Okay. But that doesn't mean that you aren't right. It's being able to assess, you know, or I could see people getting defensive, right. (laughs) That, uh, but it's okay. You don't have the skills. So just like learn the skills and then the skills will align with like the environment that you'd like to be providing. Right. Exactly. And it's one of those things where when we can bring that mindset to it, we don't have to get defensive because it's not about your failure or you not being nice enough. It's just about, oh, these are some skills that you haven't learned yet and they are learnable. So <laughs> you can learn them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. No, I love that. So I'd also, I'd love to talk a little bit about just sort of business ownership in general and your experience. Yeah. Um, so how long has Curvy Yoga been around? What's the timeline that we're talking about? Um, so it's been around for seven years and I've been full-time for, uh, about five. Okay. Ooh, that's interesting. So, oh no, six. <laughs> hey, congrats. Yeah, that's... almost six. <laughs> so do you remember sort of what criteria you set for yourself about, okay, now is when I'm going to, you know, take the risk and go full-time with this? Yeah. So I was working at a local university at the women's center and I was the associate director. So i I didn't do a ton of direct programming with students, but I kind of had charge over um, our side of the sexual assault and intimate partner violence services. That was kind of my main focus area. So I was starting to get a little bit fried on that work and curvy yoga was growing and I'm a total planner. I am not a leap in the net will catch you person most most of the time. (laughs) Um, So I had a plan for about a year where I thought, okay, I'm going to save money 
and I'm going to leave this job and go work um, at a local college and teach English again, which I mentioned something I used to do. So I thought if I save some money and then I get a part-time job, then I can start doing curvy yoga part-time and see how it grows from there. So I did that plan. I left my job. I got the other teaching English job. And then I was there for four days. Um, Nick and I went to visit my dad who was in the hospital really sick from his cancer. And he died that weekend, somewhat expectedly, somewhat unexpectedly. So my mom was in total shock. She had not really realized where he was in his disease. And my sister was in nursing school and had to go back because she couldn't miss. And so I was the only person who could really stay with my mom in a time when I felt like she really needed it. And I just thought, I can't go back for a job I've only had for four days. Mm -hmm. So I called and I was just like, look, this is what's happened. I'm so sorry, but please just like find someone else. So, you know, they did. I stayed with my mom for a few weeks, came home and I came home to this totally different environment. Talk about control versus surrender because I had planned to have a job (laughs) and have income and, you know, have a pretty structured transition. And I came back to none of that. I was, I had been teaching a couple yoga classes per week. So, you know, they had found subs while I was gone and I still had those classes, but you know, that is not pay that you can live on. (laughs) So Nick and I kind of like looked at our finances. He was working like by no means was he making any great amount of money, but we figured like, okay, we can probably get by on like ramen noodles or whatever for a couple months while I like grieve and process and just sort of figure out what's going on from here. Um, So my plan totally did not work out, but ended up, no, of course not the death, but um, going to Curvy Yoga full time, I just thought like, okay, well, this opportunity has presented itself, even though I wouldn't have chosen it at this time or in this way. Mm -hmm. So let me just see what happens from here. And that's when I started um, Curvy Yoga Certification, offering tools for people who are already yoga teachers to try to kind of bring in some different kinds of income. And then things grew from there. How long from that point did it take to get to a place where you felt financially comfortable with it? Hmm. It's funny, like, it depends on what financially comfortable (laughs) means, because I, for a long time, I thought I was a big believer in, like, you have to spend money to make money. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I do feel like part of that is true. But I was so just like, I'll just have credit card debt, like, it's no big deal, I'll just pay it off later. And so for most of the time until I hit that studio where I had all of that debt, I always had at least some debt in the background. But we had like enough to pay bills and be relatively comfortable, probably after like six months or a year. Sure. Um, but that debt was always there. And so after the studio closed and I had so much, I really changed the way that I relate to money and am not comfortable with debt anymore and don't run my business that way anymore and paid it all off. And that feels really freeing now. Yeah. But that was a long time in the making. You know, I think for a long time, people were like, Kirby Yoga is so, so successful. And I'm like, oh, yeah, six years later in the black. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's, listen, I mean, that I respect so much that it's so easy. Well, I was going to say I respect so much like you being honest about that because it's so easy, particularly with online business, right? Like to just 
like, how do we know what's success? First of all, what even is success, right? Like that's like an individual definition, but it's, I think the imposter syndrome or like the comparing yourself to other people is really easy when you look at, so, you know, such and such person seems really successful. What does that even mean? Right? Like maybe they're not earning money. That's why we want people to be more honest about money, but Mm -hmm. so, okay. So how do you define success with your business? Like what specifically does that look like for you? Oh my gosh, this has really changed. So for the first probably almost five years of Curvy Yoga, you know, I was just bopping along in the online business world, taking every class, having a million coaches. A million webinars. Dude, I've been there. Yes. Oh my gosh. I did so many. I can't tell you how many e-courses I have on oh my, my computer right now that I've never done. You Pretty know, just like thousands of dollars worth of stuff. I like maybe watched the first five minute video or whatever just always feeling like somebody else has to tell me like how to run this business and how to do it right. And I don't know what to do. And so that was also during a time where I just said yes to everything. And that was like not new and it's not related only to my business. So I burned out in my work um, a couple different times. And when that happened, I thought, oh, I'm in the wrong career. I have to change jobs. This is such a terrible place. And then around 2015, I burned out in my own business. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't have a boss to blame. (laughs) I have to look in the mirror. Um, And so, you know, you talked earlier about your values and identifying those. And I had this really stark moment then when I thought, you know, if somebody asked me what was most important to me, I would say it's Nick, my family, you know, my own health, my yoga practice, whatever. Is what I'm doing reflecting that? No, none of it. Like all of my time was on my business. And I also had this moment where Nick very rarely gives me any kind of pushback on anything that I'm doing. And so we were talking and I can't really remember how the conversation got started, but he sort of offhandedly said like, yeah, cause you're around all the time. And I was like, wait a minute, I am like, I'm here. I'm not traveling that much. But it was in that moment that I realized, yeah, I was with him, but I was like always on my phone or answering an email or like we'd have dinner for, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go work the rest of the night. And then I was just like, this is not how I want to live my life. This is not what is important to me. And so I started to change where now what is most important to me in my business is that it supports how I want to live my life, which is really about having time more than money because I had really bought into all the messages in that online business world that are like, you have to be able to make six figures or whatever. And you should always be trying to make more money. And I was just finally like, I don't need that much money. Like, I don't need to make six figures. I don't need to make a million dollars. Like, I'm fine. I want to have my time and my relationships and offer things that I think are important and good. And then like the end. I can relate to literally every single thing that you just said. (laughs) It's funny when you were talking about like the, all the e-courses, right. And like the coaches Mm -hmm. and the webinars or whatever, all that stuff. Um, my, I jokingly like say that I'm a recovering self-help addict, but it's really not a joke. I mean, self-help and like in like the kind of personal business, you know, arena as well, that I hit a point with that, that it's, that sounds very similar to your, you know, tally up all the diets, like a 66 diet that I'm like, I just, I don't need someone else's ebook. I don't need another ebook. And that's like no knock against horrified if I tally that up. Yeah. Right. Oh my God. Right. That I, uh, 
and no knock against people that are doing like actually incredible work. Right. But for me, I was yeah. like, I, when you said you were, you know, a lay nutritionist at that point that I'm like, I, I've, I have consumed so much information about, you know, personal growth, personal development, like how to whatever business online. And like, this is not making me happy. It's, it's too much information, like all. And then you just get stuck in this cycle of like giving your power away and always going to the next thing, right? Like always having right. to be, you know, in a, in a program or in a course or in a mastermind or in a, all those things right. are great if they're intentionally chosen and it's the right fit for you. But I was basically like binge consuming those things and finally oh got gosh, to the point yeah, where I was too. like, you're done. <laughs> like You're right. done with this. And, uh, yeah, I mean, again, obviously, you know, we yeah, all have I was our- like, you cannot buy another e-course until you do all of these e-courses. Yeah, if you, well, right. I'm never going to do that. Never, literally never. <laughs> I know for me that it was like, you can't buy another thing from the self-help genre until you have implemented, like at least half, like it would take me 10 lifetimes to implement like even <laughs> half of what I've read, right? That's like, but there's something really addictive about like, I think dieting's the same way. Like, well, it's going to be the next thing. It's going to be the next one, right? right. And it's really it's easy to right. passively consume information, And it's really difficult to put it into action. So instead of putting it into action, we just consume the next information. Right. Because you feel like you're doing something because you are, but it's not actually getting you anywhere that you want to be. Yeah. I also really like what you said about um, the have like that success with with your business is like having it support your life. I think that there is definitely not enough talk about that word enough, like getting to the point where you decide like, this is enough for me. This is enough money. This is enough things. This is enough, you know, space enough, whatever. And I don't have to, just because it's the culturally accepted thing to like want more money and to always be striving for more that if you have, you know, are lucky enough, privileged enough, whatever to like reach the point where you're like, this is enough. And I'm able to stop. There's that's, I, I I feel like it's, it's, that's a very non-mainstream choice. Yeah. And I feel that sometimes I had a book come out in January and, you know, I see so many people's book launches that are just like super intense, like a million different moving parts and they're going to a hundred cities and all this stuff. And I was just like, I can't, like, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. This is not my intention with this whole project. And I just thought I'm going to like make a plan for what I'm going to do. Not like I'm going to do nothing and I'm just going to stick with that plan. And, you know, In the past seven years, of course, many more teachers have kind of come on the scene doing sort of similar work. And some of them have, you know, more recognition, whatever that looks like than I do. And sometimes that like needles me and I'm like, oh, I should be out there. I should be doing that too. And then I just have to come back to, is that what I want? Like, do I want to be gone from my house all the time? No, I mostly like to be at home. You know, (laughs) I want to offer what I feel like I'm uniquely able to offer. I always want to feel like my work is helping people. Um, And my time is my highest value Mm -hmm. in terms of resources. Yeah, no, I respect that. I feel like this is, again, something that I want people to be more open and honest about that, like stepping in any regard, stepping outside of sort of the kind of mainstream behaviors, like it, that it's, but that, and that it's fulfilling, but that it's also, challenging and really hard at times that just because you're making the decision that's the best fit decision for you, right? Like not to pursue six figures all the time or whatever, as an example, doesn't mean that there aren't still, it's like so much of, I feel like what's true in life is being able to hold like contradictory things like that. It can be true, right? That that's the right thing for you. And also sometimes it like feels really lonely and like insecure to be, to be doing something different. Right. Exactly. Or you run back into those 
you know, e-course messages or whatever. And you know, like uh, lately I've been seeing these things that are like, you know, back in the day, I feel like everybody was like, oh, you have to make six figures. And now I feel like I'm constantly people seeing people say, here's how you can make seven figures. And I'm like, dudes, <laughs> I have to get away from this information because it, you know, can kind of trigger me. And then I'm like, oh, this isn't what I want. This isn't how, how I want to live my life. And it is that real back and forth. Yeah. I always, I think this is an interesting topic too, that, I mean, the reality of, you know, being a person in the world is like, we do have to buy stuff. Right. And that there isn't anything wrong with buying stuff and with being a consumer and that it's, you know, it's, it's hard for me to have these, this kind of conversation without feeling like I'm not trying to like demonize all businesses or online businesses or e-course, you know, whatever, but it's being able to just be a little bit more intentional about it. I mean, it's something that I had to think about a lot. Um, when, when you were talking about, you know, setting up your business, so it has sort of that some seasonality baked into it. For me, that was the decision to, you know, not have advertising on the podcast. You know, I experimented mm, right. with for a couple seasons and then I was like, well, those are the only companies I believe in, like with my whole heart. So I guess I'm done. Right. Like but <laughs> trying to, and it's hard sometimes to do something that's different to be like, okay, well, I'm not going to water down this message, like to please a sponsor. I don't feel good, like selling my audience's attention, right. To someone yeah. else. And that that's how plenty of podcasts make money and survive and money has to come from somewhere. And so there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not the right fit for me. And yet sometimes I'm like, man, I could be making a lot more money if, you know, just having to kind of sit with the reality of, you know, acting in integrity with yourself. Yeah. Oh, I think that integrity point is so important because, you know, any of these things could be in in integrity for any given person. I think it's about really discerning what is true for you because I certainly learned things from the parts of the courses that I engaged with, but it was that binge desperation quality in me that made it unhealthy. Yeah, totally. Me too. So I'm curious how, because it seems like you have a desire to make like not only yoga accessible, but you know, part of accessibility is affordability, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, how do you navigate that with like the need to earn a living? And I'm I'm just kind of curious how you think about, you know, money and pricing when it comes to your work. Yeah, so Curvy Yoga kind of has two different arms to it, one for students and one for teachers. And so I want everybody to be able to access what they need. So I have tons of free stuff. So I have an online yoga studio, and there's a free membership that has a lot of like different videos and meditations. And so I always want people to access things for free, and then they can get more if they want it. And I tried to make that really affordable. So the online studio is just $20 a month. So about the price of one drop-in yoga class. Um, And by making it affordable, that means that I can have more people join. So it's about making it a lower price point and then trying to get more people to join into it. Sure. And then the yoga teacher's training side of things is more expensive, obviously, because it's a training. People are getting some continuing education. Um, And then I will offer scholarships to people if they talk to me about that one-on-one. So I'm always flexible, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned um, your book that recently came out. Yeah. Um, I'm... I have so many questions about the book. Um, So first, (laughs) just like a little kind of overview on like what the book's about and who it's for. Yeah. So this book, I did not want to write just a yoga pose book. Um, There's already some out there. And I really wanted this to be a book about 
how do yoga and body acceptance come together? And, you know, you mentioned earlier that I said I'm obsessed with the how. Um, Like, how does that happen? That's a huge part of this book. So the vast majority of the book is kind of a combination of my story and then tips and suggestions for how to bring your yoga practice and your body acceptance practice to life and really like doable, simple ways. And then the appendix of the book is curvy pose options so that people can take that information into any yoga class that they attend. And even if the teacher doesn't give any of that information, the student will know what to do and how to support themselves. That's brilliant. So, and the book's called Curvy Yoga as well, isn't it? Yeah, right. So it's simple to find. (laughs) I mean, I'll put links to everything. So tell me about your, like the creation process of this, kind of the writing process. I'm curious about just like the nitty gritty, like what did it look like to create this book? Oh my gosh. Well, it was much harder than I thought it would be. (laughs) So I... I had a plan, you know, I wrote a book proposal for the book. I had this outline and I'm, I'm definitely a person who can write from an outline. So I thought like, okay, great. I've got this outline. I know exactly what to do. I'm just going to sit down and write this book. Uh, wrong. So, um, I started to get into it a little bit and then the outline wasn't working. I was like, Oh, these aren't really the right chapters. They have to change. And, I reached this point, I had a friend who was also working on a book, and she and I agreed every single day that we would email each other, well, Monday through Friday, and just say, I wrote or I didn't write or just, you know, say a little bit about the experience. But we could both be really honest. So we could say like, oh, I was resisting my writing today. And that made a big difference. It made me feel less alone in the process to be doing that with her. Um, And so finally, I got to this point where I said, I just have to get words down on paper, and then I can go back later and sort of um, futz with the outline and figure out how to make it work. And so it was not until the very last draft, like they're about to hit publish, you know, not, that's not really how it works, but um, essentially that I finalized the outline. Like I was still shaping that material until the very last moment. That's interesting. Uh How long? Like substantially, like moving it around, restructuring the chapters, that kind of thing. How long did it take start to finish? (laughs) Well, I wrote the book proposal three years before the book came out. Now, there was quite a delay. I wrote the proposal. I had a delay with, like I had an agent for a different book that I was a co-editor on and it didn't really work out and I had to get a different one. So there was like this about a year delay in in all of that process. Um, So once I got the book contract, which was June of 2015, um, I had to turn the manuscript in in January 2016. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is something else I'm always interested in is just, it seems like things happen overnight, right? When like, we know they don't, but it's nice to hear Mm -hmm. like, this took a lot of years. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it takes such a long time. Yeah. And that was the first draft. And then I had more drafts until... I think last summer is when they were, it was finished. What was the most challenging part of the process for you? Mm. Letting myself not be perfect Mm. because it was something that had to be done, but I could like, I could still be rewriting it right now. Like, you know, that's just kind of my tendency. I just want to keep, reworking it and making everything crystal clear and exactly like how I want it. And, you know, I feel like it's 
close, but I don't feel like it's there. And so I had to let myself live in that space of surrender. And I'm still sharing the information that I want to share. And that's really what's most important, rather whether or not this you know, sentence or section or whatever is like exactly like I would want it to be. Yeah. The really good thing that you worked hard on that exists is better than the perfect thing that never exists. Right. Exactly. Um, What would you do differently if you wrote another book? I think I would be less tied to what it has to look like from the beginning. Um, I think like that structure has really worked for me writing blog posts, but it didn't work for me writing a book. So letting myself just kind of, I guess, just knowing that it's going to be a bit of a mystery and take its own shape over time. And I, not only do I not need to, like, I cannot know how the book is going to end up. Mm -hmm. Part of it comes to life through the writing of it. So I would give myself a lot more slack yeah. in that regard because I gave myself zero. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. And then I had to learn the hard way that that needed yeah. to happen. Exactly. Do, so now that you're on the other side of, of essentially the book, what do you feel most proud of? I mean, honestly, what you just said a minute ago is what I'm most proud of, that it's just out there. Um, I really... And then I've heard from people who have said, you know, I resonated with so much with your story. I had tears in my eyes or it really made me think about my own life. And for me, that's what it's all about. Like, I'm not here. You know, I don't know how much longer I'll be doing curvy yoga. Not like I have a plan to end it, but more like I started it because it was something I always wanted to find. And so I keep offering things when there feels like there's a need for it. And, you know, if the time comes where there isn't, then I will let it go. I think that's a beautiful and very uh, often unheard thing, right? This idea sometimes that like something has to exist forever. Mm, Right. Especially when we talk about online business or things, that's another thing that I think holds people back from starting something. It's like, well, if I start a blog, then I have to blog forever, right? Like I think about, I mean, I blogged for eight years and then like 20 in kind of around this time, it was like April, you know, April, May, 2015. I was like, I had been really not liking it for a while. I was like, you know, this has come to an end and I'm a very kind of burn it to the ground, start over type of person, which isn't everyone's jam, but I (laughs) I deleted the entire thing and people were shocked. I mean, I've been doing this for eight years of my life and I was like, no, I'm out. I mean, it wasn't an overnight decision for me. It's like very agonizing while the decision-making process happens. And then once I get to the point of making a decision, I'm like, well, burn it down. I'm gone. Right. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) which for better or worse, that's who I am. But that like, It really kind of brought up a lot of what you were just saying that this, it's funny that, oh, just because this was successful by some metrics or because there were people that were fans of it, that, okay, that means you have to do it forever. But no, again, seasons, right? That I think we can really hold ourselves back by feeling like, I built up this thing and well, then I'm going to like lose all these followers or people are going to stop paying attention or what, but you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we know when our particular time with a certain project or a job or a relationship or a behavior has come to an end. And I feel like I've never been less happy or more resentful than when I don't listen to that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, me too. And you know, I'm definitely not at that point right now, but I know that I never expected Curvy Yoga to be what it is today. So I live with 
I, I feel like the reality of, I don't know what it will become. Maybe I will keep doing it forever, yeah. but I feel like I just have no idea and I don't have um, like a five, I don't have a five month plan really, much less a five year plan. Um, I try to keep my ear to the ground and see what's relevant to but me I, and to the community. I think there's a lot of empowerment that can come from just that act of staying open, right? Like I don't hear you mm-hmm. saying like, I hate this, I'm done, right? Like not right, at all, but it's yeah. the not being so attached to something. I don't know, I think it's really common to sort of have this like fantasy or even like fetish about the stories of people who like, I never gave up, right? Especially when we talk right. about like athletes or, you know, people who are super famous, right? That like, no, I knew it was my dream and I was gonna, you know, eat ramen for 10 years and do, like there's something that's really sexy about that story, right? And right. I guess- Mm-hmm. Sure. If you do know that this is your one dying, burning path, like, but I think that's really rare that people have like one thing only that they're so obsessed with and being yeah, able to, ha- yeah, right. Like have the grace to be like, we'll see what happens. I'm open. If it comes to a point where like, there isn't a need for this anymore, or if I'm not energized about it, it's okay to do other things. Like it's okay to change and pivot. And right. Um, I think about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, what I went to college to be an accounting major. <laughs> I, I graduated with an English and philosophy degree. I thought I'd be an English professor for life. I wasn't. I worked in a non, I got a degree in nonprofit management and worked in a domestic violence center in the university. I thought I'd do that forever. I didn't. So I just feel like my life has already shown me that you don't really know what shape it will take in the future. Yeah. And what if that's fine? Right. Like, yeah, I also have a very like twisty, turny kind of education and career history that I gave myself a hard time about for a long time. What's wrong with you that you can't pick something and stick with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, the kind of things that I would say to myself. And then I'm like, well, what if it's fine for like my thing is constant change. <laughs> like what right. if that's fine or just, yeah. yeah anyway, I love that. If that um, is your path. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So I think that's a good place to start to wrap up. Um, yeah. The way that we end these, as you know, is with what we call community questions. So it's just nine kind of hopefully fun, rapid fiery questions that um, the people in the Patreon community have put forward for me to ask the guests this season. Great. All right. So number one, what is your guilty pleasure right now? it is I don't know if it's not really guilty but I am obsessed with face masks right now (laughs) I don't really know why Um, I think like I hadn't done it for a while and now I'm like can I do one every single day no that's too much (laughs) I'm gonna like peel my face off so I have to slow down (laughs) that's so funny I love that so what is it about the face mask like why is that like a pleasurable experience for you I don't it's like I had a facial on my birthday and it just like reminded me like, oh, moisturizing and exfoliating is good. Like I'm not that great at it. I had one moisturizer I would just kind of slap on haphazardly every night before bed. And so now I'm like, oh yes, I'm so into it. <laughs> That's fun. And like, like, I don't know, there's something sort of um, relaxing or luxurious. Like you put it on, you wait, then you take it off. Um, like a little mini spa experience, I guess. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, what's one change that you've made in your life, maybe a habit or a lifestyle change or a relationship or career change, something else that was really tough at the time, but really worth it in the end? Mm. The first thing that came to mind is being willing to let um, friendships go that aren't a good fit. You know, I felt for a long time, like you have to hang on to every relationship. They are meant to last for life. Kind of like we were just talking about with work. Um, 
And, you know, there have been some different relationships in my life where I found out where it was kind of one-sided. We talked about that earlier. Or we had just grown in different ways. Um, And so being willing to just walk away from that when it was no longer healthy for me uh, was so hard in the moment. But now I feel fortunate to not have that, um, you know, that starts to feel like a bit of a drain in your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What's something that helps you to stick with a long-term project or goal? Oh gosh, I'm really not good at that, but. (laughs) Hey, that's um, an okay answer too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Breaking it down into really, really small parts though does really help me. Like if I look at, write a book, forget it. I'm never going to get started. But if I look at, you know, write this paragraph or this outline or whatever, that makes me be able to calm down Mm -hmm. (laughs) and actually give it a try. What's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? Oh, gosh. Having a hard relationship with somebody in my family where I feel like there's a big part of me that's just like, this person's just like this. I'm just like that. We're totally different. It's not even worth trying, but it actually is. And I'm trying to muster up the ability to do that. Hmm. That's a very honest answer. What's something that a lot of people seem to do that you don't do? Well, say yes to everything. I almost always say no now. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Which comes with its own like downside too, I will say. Yeah, for sure. I try to find a balance, but what advice would you give yourself five years ago? Mm, five years ago. I'm like, when was five years ago? 2012. I think that I could trust my own instincts more, both in my personal life and in my business. We talked about how that's one of my uh, go-to life lessons. I had such a sense of like, I have to like force this business into existence and though, of course, I have to show up and be present for it and learn things and all of that. Um, it has rarely been a success when I have forced it. Yeah. I always wonder with that question, like, I like the idea of retroactive advice, but like, would five years ago me even listen? I don't know. It's <laughs> a separate question, I guess. Uh, I'm sure I would have. But <laughs> when you look ahead at the next few months, what do you feel most excited about? Hmm. Well, in the summer, Nick and I usually try to go away a little bit because it just gets so hot in Nashville, um, at least for a couple weeks. So I'm really excited about that. I don't know what we'll do. Last summer, we actually went to the Oregon coast. So close to me. Oh my gosh, I loved it so much. I was like, let's just move here. <laughs> Oregon is pretty great. Like that. I'm always like the person I always want to move. And Nick is like, let's just stay here forever. So we try to balance that, each that other. That sounds out. like me and my husband as well. I'm like, <laughs> next place, next. And he's like, no, no, we're going to die in this house. I'm like, mm, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which two to three books, any books, any genre, would you say have either had a really big impact on you or maybe that you reread or recommend the most? Oh my gosh. I am a huge reader. I read like a hundred books a year. Me but too. I'm terrible at remembering them. <laughs> um, one is by Elizabeth Alexander. It's called something like uh, The Light of the World, I think might be the name of it. It's just such a beautiful memoir. Her husband died unexpectedly, and she writes about the the process. And 
I don't know if I've ever read such good writing. Like there was a time when I was reading that book at the beginning of it that I actually had to sit it down and breathe. That's how like evocative her writing was. I just thought it was so beautiful. Um, similarly, a book by Kent Haruf, who's a, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, a novelist. He recently wrote a book. I'm going to look it up while I'm talking about my other one. Um, I also love Anne Lamott. Oh my God, I um, love her. <laughs> and Traveling Mercies is one that I used to recommend constantly and still really love that book. Um, Kent Hurf's book is Our Souls at Night, which is a novel about uh, two older people and kind of what it's like looking back at your life. That's kind of a cliched way to describe it, but it's really beautifully written. Okay. I, the, yeah, the first book and the last book that you mentioned, I haven't heard of. So I'm definitely going to have to look those up, especially since you mentioned uh, Traveling Mercies, which mm-hmm. I mean, I love. She's the kind of writer where, <laughs> I, I don't know if I've ever shared this before, but where I think of it in my mind, it's a burn book where like I like it so much and I'm so jealous that I didn't write it that I want to set it on fire. That like I like, <laughs> I'm like loving it, but I'm like hate reading it. And I like it's, like, it's very complicated where I'm like, this is too good. Like all I want to do is like set this down and set it on fire, but like I have to finish it. <laughs> it's probably not a healthy relationship with books, but I love it. It's funny. Um, the last question if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action right now, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Hmm. I would say, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier about that seasonality and ebb and flow of your life, I would love for people to just think about that. Like, where have you seen that in your life and where could you maybe honor it a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. Um, curvyyoga.com is, you can find everything from there that we've talked about the book, the online studio, et cetera. And I would say Instagram is probably my favorite place to hang out. I'm on curvy yoga everywhere on social. Awesome. Yeah. Instagram's my favorite place to hang out too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was truly delightful. I'm so glad that you came on the show. Thank you. I loved it. And thanks everybody for listening. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by people like Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What is your guilty pleasure? Um, watching The Bachelor. <laughs> nice. You know, I don't know that I've ever seen a full episode of The Bachelor, which is kind oh, of, really? I, I feel like I should at this point, right? It's like a cultural. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I know it's, it's, it feels like such a, like a common, like, oh, that's everyone's guilty pleasure. But I don't know. It kind of is mine too, or like other trashy reality TV shows. That's funny. I, my, one of my best friends, Drea, who was a guest a couple seasons ago, she used to mm-hmm. do this amazing blog called I Watch the Bachelor So You Don't Have to, where she would do these like, right. recaps or whatever. So I feel like I've watched it sort of. <laughs> That's funny. Right. Um, That's awesome. Okay. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? What's like your dream breakfast? Oh, that's a good question. Cause I never used to be a breakfast person. I used to hate breakfast. Um, I would say probably waffles like the deep belgian waffles with strawberries and whipped cream 
that's my favorite. Oh, that sounds so good. I feel like there's every two months, maybe every three months, I'm like, I should buy a waffle iron. And then I can't justify it. But maybe, <laughs> maybe you should. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I do have a little mini Belgian waffle maker. So I don't make it very often. But I do enjoy a good waffle. If you had an extra $100 and you had to spend it on something fun that's just for you, how would you spend it? Oh, that's that's a really good question. I would probably either spend it on a race registration because I have a problem with signing up for races or um, take a day trip somewhere like near an ocean or a lake and just be able to like spend the day reading and in silence. I know. I feel like for me, it would be like, I would buy all these books. And I'm like, that's kind of mm-hmm. a boring answer, but <laughs> your answers are great. <laughs> Who's your favorite person to follow on social media? Um, or a favorite. It doesn't have to be like yeah. your favorite. I mean, I really enjoy following you. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, someone else. I really like, oh gosh, who do I follow on social media? Um, I call, I follow, oh my goodness. I am trying to think I'm like racking my brain on who I follow. I like following my friends. I like seeing what they're up to. Um, and just kind of like seeing a piece of their life. Um, some of my favorite people to follow are, um, my brother and sister-in-law cause I have two little two-year-old twin nieces so they're super cute. Any, any of their fun things. And I also like following, uh, let's see, like a couple, since I'm an entrepreneur, I've also follow other people who do similar jobs that I do just to kind of see how they uh, grow their business or, um, just kind of getting tips or advice or anything like that. I really like following quotes. So anyone who shares a good quote, is always someone I enjoy following. I know. I'm such a sucker for that too. <laughs> Love it. So the last question, what is one of your favorite books or a book that has impacted you a lot? Uh, the Success Principles by Jack Canfield. Um, that just, I really feel like has really good tips on how to reach your goals in life and how, you know, a lot of it is you can't just wait for things to happen to you, you know, you have to like kind of take action plans and say, okay, like, what is it that I want to achieve in my life and write it down and remind yourself of that daily. And, and it's kind of like almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense of if you read your goals every day, things will happen in your life to help you uh, reach those goals. Um, but yeah, the success principles I really enjoyed. Interesting. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share first why you decided to support the show and maybe one thing you love about either the bonus content or being in the community or just something you love about being part of this. Sure. So I have been following and supporting you um, by reading your blog for, I don't know, three or four years now. Um, And then when you started the podcast, I just found myself really connecting to a lot of the stories that of the people you had on. I remember like I'm a runner and you had um, Jason Fitzgerald on, I think in your first season, I was just like, oh my God, I love this episode. And there were so many other just great little stories or like kind of quotes that I could capture and be like, yeah, that's a really good like tip about life. 
And um, so when the opportunity came up to support you so that it could continue to get great content, it was a no brainer for me because I thought, well, you know, if my couple dollars continues to get great content, then it's, then it's worth it to me. Um, because you know, you could, or I could pay for two coffee drinks for $8 every two months, but other, you know, I rather support someone who provides really good content to me. So an entertainment. So, uh, and then being a part of the community, I really enjoy just kind of connecting with other people across the, the nation and just kind of hearing their stories um, and getting to know other people. And it's just, it wouldn't have been, I think online communities like 20 years ago, it was kind of sketchy to say, oh, well, we met online, but now it's much more acceptable and it's a great avenue to just find other people so that you don't feel less alone in life. Yeah, I would love to be able to do something offline too. I mean, logistically, everyone's everywhere, so we'd have to figure it out, but that would be so awesome. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. I would be there. Well, thank you for being brave and joining me for this and for supporting the show. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every month, go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together.